Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. We're glad to have you with us yet again. And it's the same crew uh, that we normally have, but we never presume that you have listened to us before. So that's why we do the intros each time. I'm C.R. Wiley, the senior pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut, and I've written stuff. Tom, how about you? Uh, Tom Price, a systematic theologian, Christian ethicist. I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of European history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and I have a ministry called Every Square Inch Ministries. All right. Anyway, uh, we want everybody to know that we're very grateful for all the gifts that we've received in different ways from different places, but particularly with for the Indiegogo campaign. We have, uh, fi- have finished that up. We are fully funded. We're going to be able to do the things we want to do. And we've got right now the process of trying to get all those thank you merch things done and out. We were just talking about that a minute ago. T-shirts and glasses, they're in the works. So hopefully uh, if you've given to the campaign, you'll get uh, one of those soon. And we're going to make more than we need. So we're going to have some available, you know, for conferences and for, you know, on our website and all that stuff. So so it's, it's a lot of fun uh, to get those, you know, made up and, and available. And maybe one of these shows will all wear them at the same time and drink from the glasses at the same time, whatever. Anyway, so today, today is my day. And I want to talk about something that I'm reading, like I did, like last time. Uh, I'm reading a book by Matthew B. Crawford. Now, Matthew B. Crawford is one of my favorite guys. Uh, and uh, he wrote a book that uh, really was a surprise bestseller. It came out in 2009, I, I believe. And, it, and it's entitled Shop Class as Soulcraft. Now, I don't know if you can read that. Maybe you see it backwards, but, uh, you know, on the image there. But Shop Class as Soulcraft, an inquiry into the value of work. Now, the thing about Crawford that makes him so uh, sort of uh, attractive to me is that he brings together the life of the mind with the, with the manual arts. And I, I'm known for a couple things, at least. Um, I'm known for being the household guy, you know, talking about household economics and that kind of thing. But I'm also known uh, in particular places as being kind of the work with your hands guy, you know, skilled trades and that kind of stuff. And I wrote a a review of this book for the Imaginative Conservative years ago, and I've gotten a lot of feedback from that review. And... I guess the things that really intrigued me about him uh, had had to do with the ability that that he has to kind of see the connections between, you know, sort of uh, political liberty, working with your hands and and, and being able to, to make things, and uh, the life of the mind. He grew up in Berkeley. His his parents were, uh, both taught at Berkeley, and they were hippies. And now when you are, you know, raised in Berkeley and you've hit the teen years and your parents are hippies, how do you rebel? Well, by becoming a conservative and subscribing to Soldier of Fortune magazine. <laughs> and that's what he did. <laughs> and he became, he became a gearhead. Uh, 
and and he became an electrician. Uh, so he was he was a licensed electrician. He was a guy who worked on his own vehicles. And one of the things that kind of repelled him with regard to kind of the world that he was ensconced in is the cerebral sort of out of touch with the physical world character of it. So his father was a physicist and, um, you know, his father would regale him with, you know, various formulae that were intended to sort of demonstrate, you know, the marvelous world of physics to him. And he was more kind of impressed with working on his Volkswagen Beetle and kind of the challenges that that presented to him. And anyway, uh, he eventually went on to get his a degree in physics himself. His, his undergrad degree is in physics. And then he went on to get his doctorate in philosophy from the University of Chicago. So this guy is no slouch. Uh, and now he's uh, on faculty at the University of Virginia, and he has a, a, a motorcycle repair shop. So he's a motorcycle repairman, kind of that's his vocation. And on the side, he teaches philosophy at the University of Virginia. <laughs> the question is, does he still subscribe to Soldier of Fortune? You know, I, I don't know, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. You know, when you look at the cover of this, you see that motorcycle there. That's a BMW, by the way. And then you got him on the back there in his shop. And then you got him here uh, in, in this latest book. Uh, he, he's, uh, he's a moto guy, and he's got his, uh, he's got his uh, leather jacket and his helmet. And he drives. <laughs> I mean, in fact, let me, uh, let, me, let me read, you know, this uh, description. Of, so this just came out. And uh, this, is the, uh, this is the description. Um, Matthew B. Crawford is the author of Shop Class of Soulcraft and the World Beyond Your Head, which another word, is another great book I, which, that I have. And, and this is a book that I think Tom would relate to really well because this is, this is Crawford's attack on Kantian man, especially <laughs> as it relates to the whole matter of uh, kind of the physical world and the knowledge we derive from engaging with the physical world. But so he earned his uh, PhD in political philosophy in the University of Chicago, specializing in ancient political thought. He, moved, uh, he majored in physics and as an undergraduate at UC Santa Barbara. And Crawford has been working on cars since the age of 15 and currently drives a 1970 Volkswagen Carmen Ghia. <laughs> so anyway, I, I relate to this guy at a lot of levels, you know, because folks who know me know I work with my hands. I was a, I was a framing Framing Carpenter, and, and, I, and I work on my properties. I own several uh, investment properties. And, uh, and so, in fact, I was actually, I actually uh, uh, was, I actually produced a video, kind of a, a video to kind of demonstrate what I could do for H, uh, for Home and Garden Television. They had a television show back in the day for, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, home repair people, you know, uh, kind of like, Handyman. It was like a handyman show, and I so I I auditioned for that. You know, I was going to be the preacher handyman. They they didn't want me, but <laughs> but I still I I still have that video that uh, shows me kind of demonstrating what I can do. But that was that was put it up on her site. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd, That'd be, be fun. Yeah, yeah. For that. <laughs> so anyway, so he, I relate to this guy a lot of levels. My father was an academic, you know, and so I grew up in the in the, the kind of time and in the kind of world that he did. And my my, as you know, the story about my parents. I, I'm my my parents were kind of, you know, kind of '60s goofy people. 
But anyway, <laughs> so I relate to this guy at several levels. But, the, the, but this particular book, Why We Drive, that's what I want to get into. Now, it's, it's uh, ironic that this book uh, is the subject today because my son, my oldest son, he drives a 1992 Cadillac, Cadillac Brome that he bought uh, back about six years ago. And uh, just on the way here from Tennessee, uh, he had issues with it. It looks like the transmission may be shot. Uh, but but he's but he's worked on uh, but my my daughter-in-law his wife is also into old cars she drives a 1988 jeep wagoneer <laughs> so they they, <laughs> they they put the 92 cadillac in the garage and then j- jumped into the wagoneer and drove up from tennessee so i've got a family where we you know we're into this kind of stuff but this particular book is a defense of driving now why would anyone need to defend driving well the reason according to Crawford, is the tech gurus in Silicon Valley are teaming up with our government to make driving more and more difficult to justify. And let, let, me, give, let me give you some, um, some snippets from the book that I think will give us plenty to work with uh, in terms of what to talk about. But he, but, uh, he talks about uh, in the uh, prelude, uh, sort of the world of uh, off-road, off-roading. And uh, he, he says here, the heightened contingency of driving off-road resembles walking uh, in the faith in an axe, that of throwing oneself into the world with hope. The ancient Greeks had a single word to express the condition of being without a road. When the way forward is not clear, aporia. It represents a moment pregnant with the arrival of something unlooked for. These experiences of serendipity and faith feel a bit scarce in contemporary culture, and the language for articulating them seems to be fading from common use. We have a vision of the future in which there would be little scope for such moments. The most authoritative voices in commerce and technology express a determination to eliminate contingency from life as much as possible and replace it with machine-generated certainty. That's what automation does, whatever else it may accomplish. So we've gotten into this conversation you know, before, what technology does to us that we sort of like the, mm-hmm. uh, the unanticipated costs, the, uh, the unintended consequences of technology. But one of the things he's saying here is that technology may make you feel more powerful. It may make you more efficient, but it also enervates. It robs you of your agency as, as a human being mm-hmm. because it removes all of the contingency mm-hmm. and sort of squeezes you into a, a particular way of doing things and pattern that's designed by somebody else. Yeah. So, so he goes on to talk about driverless cars. So his real, his, his, the, the object that's in his sights is driverless cars, which he believes uh, will uh, find a lot of people jumping on board in more ways than one, <laughs> getting into them, but also forcing the rest of us to get into them. He says, the boosters of driverless cars are unimpressed with pleasure as an ideal and they're suspicious of individual judgment. The proposed, this proposed book, or the book he's talking about here is his own book, uh, is political in spirit, 
if we may take that term in its broadest sense, as we become ever more administered and pacified in so many domains of life, I want to explore this one domain of skill, freedom, and individual responsibility, driving, before it's too late, and make a case for defending it. For self-driving cars to realize their full potential to reduce traffic and accidents, we can't have rogue dissidents bypassing the system of coordination that makes them possible. Their inherent logic presses toward their becoming mandatory. If not by fiat of the state, then by prohibitive calculations of insurance companies who will have the distributive risk among fewer human drivers. And so he goes on to describe how this whole process could even be monetized, how uh, insurance companies, because of their ability to track us, because of their ability to deal with very discreet, you know, particular situations where they can calculate risks, might even make it make a world in which just crossing the street will require a, 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 uh, a kind of a, a microtransaction in which in, you're insured for the risk of actually just walking across the street, sort of fractions of a cent kind of thing, so that everything in your life is monetized and controlled by, you know, these people somewhere. Anyway, there's a lot there that I've just thrown out there that I'm sure you guys would love to just kind of jump in and talk about, but go at it. <laughs> um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I know one arena, I, I used to always say that when I was younger, because I spent enough time in the, the, the university <laughs> doing academic work on, on one side, of course, I come from a background similarly of, of people that uh, kind of work with their hands and, and build things ground up. Um, but one of the things I remember in uh, asking myself at a certain time in the university, which some of the most asinine and absurd ideas were out there, is that, okay, this is just going to stay here. <laughs> and right. one of the things I found that very, uh, very, uh, well, with wisdom and experience is, no, this actually, the ideas that are absurd here actually flow into the rest of the world, and now it's embraced by everyone. The stuff we used to laugh at in the university and joke about is now become reality. Well, one of the things I remember not so long ago, um, actually around the year of Trump's, uh, the, the trauma he induced on the university <laughs> setting by winning. Um, but the night before he won, and, and the, uh, we had a guest speaker in one of my classes at a university I teach at, and he was from the Catholic Workers Movement. Now, of course, he, he was, on the one hand, someone very proud of his working class heritage and his identity with the, you know, the worker. Um, but on the other hand, he was just a, a radical um, in, in the Catholic world. Um, uh, it's clearly a kind of neo-Marxist in his own way. And of course, he was confident that night of, of who was going to win, and it's not the one who won. Um, <laughs> but anyway, one of the things I recall in in his conversation with the class is this whole issue about driving and not having a car. And I remember all the students almost with a puritanical moralism being so convinced that they need to forego having an automobile. They don't need it. Um, walking to a lot of places is very preferable um, or having this kind of uh, socialized way of trans 
being transported here and there. And so maybe it's okay for one person to have a car, but if they did, that becomes a vehicle for everyone to share in. But it was just interesting that they had their antenna on this notion of the automobile, because it really does um, represent all of the things they didn't like. One would be this kind of autonomy, this kind of, of self-direction and agency that wasn't collective, but had the ability to, to kind of go its own way. So yeah, what I kind of laughed at when I left that night after hearing <laughs> about the book you're talking about and, and, and seeing more things about this, this seems like it's, it's an, it, it is a couple steps away from becoming the next phase of, uh, popular uh mindset right right do you remember uh ibm had this uh advertising campaign for the smart planet does that ring a bell <clears throat> it was this whole idea or it kind of went on with you know you had smart cities <laughs> you know smart homes smart planet the idea that kind of the internet of things i don't know if that <clears throat> rings a bell but basically yeah. everything is communicating with everything else now, the, pro the problem with that, of course, is that that kind of surveillance, you've got kind of a panopticon kind of thing. It's, this is like right out of, mm -hmm. you know, Jeremy Bentham's, you know, prison where everything is being observed. You know, and what, it, what it gets me thinking about at two levels is this. One is, is that w when you've lost faith in the omniscience of God, you yeah. know, then you kind of panic and say things are yeah. out of control. We need control. We need to have yeah. some something, some way to substitute for God. And so you've got this massive sort of uh, effort to track everything, you know. And that, that's another thing that we're kind of dealing with right now. This whole idea of being, you know, tracking people who, you know, you know, uh, are infected with COVID. You know, so we we can identify yeah. where it happened and trace, you know, all of this out, and and the arguments, of course, for that are the same arguments for driverless cars: safety, safety, safety. He talks, yeah. he, he calls it the safety industrial complex. <laughs> yeah, well, it, 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 and it interestingly, because I mean, it, it, this ties us to past shows and what we a theme we've been running with is that you hit it right in the nose when. When omniscience and, and true omnipotence is is not, we don't have confidence in that because we've lost the confidence of the goodness and the orderliness of the creation and, and the good governance of it. We, we therefore have flooded that, the whole universe with the, you know, the, the voluntaristic arbitrary power, chaotic, which you can't predict and you can't govern. And so therefore our whole way of bringing that under our management was is to constitute it within that which helps us gain um, control over it, right? So it's that same beast. It's the same, it's the same nominalist or, or nihilistic beast that, you know, like Frankenstein, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this, this right. kind of creating something, but then it becomes this, this almost this arbitrary power that right. you can't reason with, you can't govern, so you have to have a way of, of managing it. And so the whole, the whole horror genre is an outgrowth of this, but this is, this is another episode of it, is, is that here we, go, we're, here we have this interesting thing. We actually use technology in one way to advance aspects of our created goodness 
to be able to widen its its capacities and freedoms and 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 you know broaden the use of our gifts but on the other it creates conditions as the technology grows around it for us to kind of try to micromanage every aspect of reality and then we become again a slave to that fear of risk and anything being chaotic or out of our management well you know the the number of directions that we could go from here is kind of legion but i'm going to start with one that's a little bit weird and that's my Um, I hear you. I hear you. The entire idea of anthropogenic climate change, I'm convinced, is based on the premise that if climate is shifting, it has to be our fault. Because if it isn't our fault, it is completely out of our control. And that is the one thing that scares us more than anything else, that there's nothing that we can actually do about it. Right. So it must be anthropogenic because otherwise the alternative is is too horrifying to contemplate. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, and go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. The, go ahead. the other places where I wanted to go here, I I started off with thinking of ants that they want us to be like ants. And <laughs> then I shifted from ants to no, they want us to be a cog in the machine. <clears throat> then I shifted to Rousseau. Uh, mm. What we're really looking at is Rousseauian man. If mm. we can do a jump off from Kantian man for the moment. <laughs> uh, in, in Rousseau, Rousseau's uh, discourse on inequality um, and his social contract, the, the fundamental argument is that private property is the root of all evil. That's the source of human inequality. And what we need to do is abolish private property. But along with that, we also have to abolish autonomy. Is that true freedom is found in submitting to the general will. So yes, what the yeah. general will is, that's what you have to submit to. And that's where true freedom is found. Now, this but, is a classic move of a propagandist. What you're doing is you're taking the word freedom, which everybody likes, who doesn't like freedom, and you're redefining it out of all resemblance to what it means, and you're allowing people to think you're talking about real freedom when what you're actually yes. talking about is it's off. And this is how Rousseau wins his arguments. It's through manipulation of the language. But what we're talking about here is actually a Rousseauian concept. And, and kind of technologized, uh, because yeah. you know, one of the things that's been sort of, I think, revelatory in the past couple of years is, is, the, is the way social media is beginning to function as a social control mechanism. Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, it, for the time being anyway, we can produce this show. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but let's just play, let's just do a little thought experiment. Let's say, you know, we get on some list and if we're on that list, it wouldn't be very difficult for them to trace us to where we live, where we work, uh, find ways to sort of apply the thumbscrews to us at the, our places of employment. Uh, yeah. I, this is a, a, even happening within, you know, the Christian, so to speak, uh, you, know, blo- you know, blogosphere. Christian, Christian doc, Christian doxing. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So yeah. let's say, let's yeah. say you say something that's unpopular. Suddenly, if you're a pastor, your your elders, if you're a Presbyterian, are getting emails. 
from people who are, you know, accusing you of some horrible thing, you know, and then, you know, they're, yeah, they're, they're coming to you and saying, why am I getting this, you know, stuff? Yeah. And, and it can be taken to another level as well. You know, with, if it's, let's say, let's say we have a situation in which, uh, you know, well, I remember years ago, I wrote, a, I wrote a letter to the Cape Cod Times on the subject of homosexual marriage, and I was obviously against it. And, I, and, and so I, I wrote this letter, it got published in the, time, or in the Times, and I, I, I told my board at the time, I said, um, I know you guys will all say that you're on board with the traditional understanding of marriage, but, but if you had a bunch of people out with, in the front of the church with pickets on Sunday morning and you had to cross the picket line, how many of you would do it? And I could see their eyes pop up wide open because this was like new territory for them. They had never considered the possibility yeah. that this kind of pressure could be applied to them. And as a pastor, you know, if you take unpopular stands uh, and your local newspaper or your local whatever decides to make you its target, how many, how many pastors really have the confidence that even their session or their board would stand behind them? if the pressure was really applied, you know, in the only way the pressure could be really applied is just by simply saying this guy from this church. And then people are saying to your members, I thought you go to that church. Are you, is your, are you, you know, supporting what your pastor and they're just sort of like, I, 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 so yeah. we, we, we are, we are in territory now where um, we have, increased exposure and vulnerability in ways that uh, people are just beginning to get yeah. getting to understand. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, with those happy thoughts. <laughs> yeah. But well, but, but it, it, it grows out of these strange tensions that come from this, this kind of a, on the one side, this, uh, the feeling of vulnerability and what, what you get really with all that, attempt to control shut down and silence is what you get as a fundamentally weak human being who has yes. the incapacity no virtue and has has very little um it, it really depicts you know something like this so they have to muster up kind of mob you know will in order to do anything and because of that that you know then they feel like that they almost feel like they're ubermensch you know um in light of this and so yeah they have no they have no confidence in their general gifts both to argue a complex case to stand courageously by themselves if they have to to all these different things and yeah so so what you get is is really a a very fragile you know um human being that requires the support of this this whole kind of uh, machine to help it to be able to do anything and that's the only thing that gives it the confidence to do it but it is the strange way to control the fear of the chaotic and and um i mean this is i, I mean you really saw it with the meltdowns with this in particular that this last generation on the universities and stuff with the last election it, it was really I mean, they were having psychological grief counseling for something which is, okay, you know, you just went through, you know, other people had to suffer through, you know, four to eight years of something that they weren't completely happy about. You're going to have to do it now and it's going to be okay. But no, it was, it was end of the world. 
And so this, this whole thinness um, and, and, and almost a thinly rooted um, psychology um, is very vulnerable. And so, yes, the, 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 the psychological um, move to create fear and then manipulate that fear into control is um, very tempting for yeah. those in the leadership of technology and power. Yeah, I think that, you know, we're, we're, we've heard, you know, uh, people commiserate for a long time about kind of the way people have been coddled and the way standards have eroded and how everybody gets a trophy and stuff like that. And that's and certainly all the case. I, I don't have any reason to disagree with that particular line of thought or in, in critique. Um, but what I think that surprised a lot of people is the way in which technology, particularly information technology, has exacerbated this and actually kind of, I think, taken it to another level. And, and your points uh, right at, you know, at during you know, the last few minutes, uh, Tom, I think are right in line with what Crawford has to say. Let me, let me read another paragraph here that reminded me of your, your statement. Speaking of uh, you know, technology and uh, that, uh, and, and he's, he's talking specifically about uh, cars, obviously. He says, uh, he says uh, my premise is that uh, he's referring to automotive subcultures where people actually work on their cars and actually have the capacity to fix them. <laughs> you know, they, they exercise agency, in other words, in their own lives. He says, my premise is that their ornery, ornery passion for driving cars that, they are, that are fully their own, and what he means by that is the, the ability to fix them, also gives them a perspective that we ought to entertain. It equips them to see just how bizarre and tyrannical a vision of progress may become when it seeks to remove the human element from every human activity. Ideals such as benevolence and convenience, are always invoked. And just as reliably, the progress and vision requires a re-education effort, reforming people who put too much faith in their own powers. Don't fight the inevitable. With passivity and dependence com comes uh, the calm of enlightenment. <laughs> so you have people who actually think that they're kind of morally superior because they can't <laughs> do anything. <laughs> <laughs> they're utterly yeah. sort of tied into this this uh, utopian world in which uh, everything is sort of instantaneously available to, to them without effort. Um, but, but go ahead. There's go ahead. another side to this. Um, the biggest blockbusters in history in the movies are the Avengers movies, where you're seeing a bunch of superheroes doing superhuman things. And I don't know how many times I've seen on my, my on Facebook where videos of people doing extreme sports uh, come up. So you have this, this subclass of people out there who do, I look at this stuff and I think not on your life. This is absolutely, I mean, I, I just saw one where, where a guy was going down a mountain on a bicycle that was just <laughs> I mean I, I right. look at this and, and he's doing flips of course while he's doing it and I'm looking right. at this and thinking I would die <laughs> that's right, yeah. that's right. but right. I like right. watching it sure yeah I love but, watching the Avengers so yeah. there's still part of us that wants 
something that is dangerous, that is exciting, that yeah. demonstrates skill and all of these kinds of things. And we want to sit and watch it. Right. We don't want to be it. Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think that's actually a, a reason for hope in the sense that if we can admire people who are skillful, then I think that says something about kind of a latent desire to be skillful ourselves. And, and maybe uh, that's the line of argument that should be taken. I, I think that's actually kind of the genius of, of Crawford. I know that's what he was arguing for in shop class of Soulcraft. He, uh, he, uh, in fact, let me, let me read a, a, a just a, a short piece from that book uh, where he gets mm -hmm. into some of this. Uh, and uh, he says here, the satisfactions of manifesting oneself concretely in the world through manual competence have been known to make a man quiet and easy. They seem to relieve him of the felt need to offer chattering interpretations of himself, to vindicate his worth. He can simply point. The building stands. The car now runs. The lights are on. Boasting is what a boy does because he has no real effect upon the world. Now, I, you know, remember a world in Western Pennsylvania where I was surrounded by these kinds of guys, taciturn and guys you just didn't mess with and you didn't, you didn't take lightly. I mean, they, they were, they were, they were men who could do seemingly everything. <laughs> they could wire their own house. They could plumb the bathroom. They could fix the car. They could do everything. And it reminds me of Jason Mraz. Uh, he has a song called Frank the Fixer. I, I don't know if you guys have ever heard it, but uh, it's a marvelous song. It's about his grandfather. And he's praising his grandfather because of his omnicompetence. Because that omnicompetence didn't just stay sort of in the world of things. He also had a way of being able to fix human relationships. In other words, there was a kind of transferable kind of dynamic or skill that, that occurred. And there's this beautiful line in the song where he talks about his sort of uh, his grandfather's never, his grandfather never lost his head. In other words, he was always cool under pressure, even when the pressure came from grandma. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know and as he describes and he sings the song, it sounds like grandma's melting down. <laughs> but that kind, of, but that kind of thing, I think, uh, evokes admiration. And what you, what you get there now, I see where he would go with the other work, especially critiquing Kant, would be because you know Kant ultimately ends up with the imposition of form onto the world. Yes, um, and this isn't what's going on here. Um, the shop as being a classroom of the soul is the way in which we are cultivating in relation to the genuine nature of things, and so there is a connectedness to creation, something very lost both both in the Christian world. And, and the rest of the world. And so that investment into a kind of um, connection with reality um, on the creaturely level um, does have a spiritual formative dimension. This is why the early church did not um, push out the whole picture from the Hellenic world that was tied to this engagement with reality, because it wasn't a imposition of the will or form onto reality. It was an actual engagement with it to draw from the voice of creation, something true about 
creation and the creator. And so it is spiritual and formative because you are invested in the world God made, which is uh, in it, it, which is completely connected up to the God that made it. Yeah, I think that's right. I, 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 uh, recently, I had a uh, conversation with a with a young man. We were talking about children and working with children, and I drew on my background in working with wood and building things. And uh, I talked about how people, you know, have to be understood both regarding kind of their particular natures, but in, but also in terms of their nature as a man or a nature as a woman, and then just human nature. So you got three levels there. You know, it's completely idiosyncratic, what this particular person is, and then the differences between male and female, and then just what does, you know, it mean to be a human being. And I, what I try to do is I try to say, you know, there are certain there are certain people who are easier to work with, and then there, there are others who are more difficult to work with. And uh, what, you, what you deal with sometimes is, is the nature of, the, of, of what you're working with in terms of materials will determine your approach. So like I remember when I was building decks back in the day, you know, you could do stuff with yellow pine, which is pressure treated, green, kind of ugly, knotty wood. And that's often the material that you, that's used just for stru the structural elements. And you can just beat that stuff all day long and it doesn't matter. You know? <laughs> and, then you, and, and then it's sort of at the opposite end of the scale, you know, you've got redwood, which is very hard, very beautiful, very durable, but very unforgiving. You know, you got to work, you got to be precise with redwood because redwood is not going to, 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 to do any, what you want it to do unless you absolutely are perfect in sort of how you've, you've you know, worked with it. And then uh, the most beautiful of all woods I've ever worked with is cedar. Cedar is like the Marilyn Monroe <laughs> of woods. It smells great. <laughs> it's forgiving. <laughs> you know, you can, you can, you can actually uh, mess it up and it, and it heals itself. You know, it's just got all these marvelous qualities to it. But uh, when you're dealing with reality, there's kind of this feedback yeah. loop, you know, you're dealing with, that's and I think right. that's, and I think yeah. sometimes we don't know how to work with people because yeah. we approach them like a nominalist would, where it's just kind of command and obey. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's legislate them rather than have to deal with the reality that they are. Mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, why, why do, you know, you, you think of idealist notions of relationships and why do so many relationships and marriage don't, don't have the the sustenance to go on it's, it's that very thing because you're you're imposing an ideal onto a situation which is never going to meet up to first place but secondly when all of the the um, limit of reality starts to require us to conform to it in order to adjust and and develop the virtues to be able to to orient ourselves to it in the healthy rather than unhealthy ways i mean you're dealing with the, you know, created order, moral order, and the intrinsic nature of things, coupled with, you know, the fact that the fall has, you know, impacted things. So, so we have a very thick uh, place of reality. But when you're dealing with each of those woods, you're also seeing that, you know, this is the point of kinds and natures, right? Their place, they're not, you, you can't merely impose your will on those things because they're not just going to submit they're going to push back because of the kinds of things that they are. So therefore, there is a there is a engagement with reality and realism that that doesn't work, you know, the, you know, in in the ways Kant envisioned 
kind of, you know, the world. I mean, to his credit, he at least acknowledged there was a thing in itself that placed a limit on it. But where he ended up going, based on the thinness of his project, it, 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 could, not, uh, it could not be sustained. And so it became this kind of, it gave the, the, it gave the moral impulse to be able to use technology to just steamroll those those kind of things um any kind of pushback from created reality it would just kind of um seek to trample over now i, I want to go back to self-driving cars sure <laughs> okay now and and the reason is because i mean all right let's talk about self-driving cars what are the advantages the advantages are number one it's incredibly convenient I mean, if i could you know, I'm, I'm going to be taking a trip to another state very shortly, and it's a 12-hour drive. Yeah. I could get in a self-driving car and do that. There are all kinds of other things I can do on the road that don't require, you know, my concentration on driving. I could make more productive use of the time. It's convenient. If I had a self-driving car, I could let it go feral while I'm at work and ferry people around and earn some extra money that way. You know, self-driving. Um, and there is at least the potential, and I'm not sure it's real, but at least the potential that it could be safer. There are all kinds of pluses here. Negative is learned helplessness. Yeah. And see, and, and that is and that whether the learned helplessness I, you know, I, I'm no longer autonomous. I no longer make my own decisions. I'm, I'm at the mercy of whatever the computer algorithm says. And I think that's something. helplessness a bigger price to pay than the benefits that I get from it. This, this kind of calculating is really good, Glenn. I, but, it's, but I think that in our world, we don't think in those terms. We think progress is simply better and better and better stuff. It's so, not. Yeah, so the question and, yeah. The question I want to ask is, what kind of wood are we? <laughs> or are we right. Yeah. right, right. Well, yeah. well, one of the things that he does here in the first part of the book, which is really great, is he kind of gives you a kind of perspective on the different players. So there's the argument that you just made from the consumer. You know, I can, you know, I don't like my drive to work in the morning, and I could use that extra time to answer emails or something like that. Uh, and then there's the, the perspective of the city planner and the environmentalist and, uh, you know, the people who are interested in seeing things done more efficiently. You know, so that's that. Mm. But what's, what's the payoff for the tech company? See, that's the thing that's sort of mm. like the last sort of, sort of it's that part that's unexamined. And he, he, at one point uh, in, in this, he talks about uh, Google colonizing your commute. So in other words, you are at the mercy of Google hmm. because, you know, what, what is it, what, what's in this for Google? Why do they want to do this? You know, I remember when search engines came up initially, you know, back in the days when you had like hmm. five or six different ones, you know, like Alta Vista and whatever, all, there's, now there's just one. You know, it seems like, it seems like you, it, it, it seems like by necessity, there's this kind of process. We saw it with Amazon. We see it with Google. Now, so the question is, what's in it for these guys? Uh, and he says uh, in a chapter entitled Cars and the Common Good, <laughs> has anyone bothered to ask why the world's largest advertising firm, or that is what Google is, 
mm. is making a massive investment in automobiles by colonizing your commute, currently something you do, an actual activity in the tangible world that demands your attention with yet another tether to the all-consuming logic of surveillance and profit. Those precious 52 minutes of your attention, he's talking about the average commute both ways, added up, are now available to be auctioned off to the highest bidder. So now what happens? You think you've got some private time in the car, but the stupid car has a screen. And what's on the screen when, you know, when it knows you don't need anything? Well, you could say, well, I want to I watch YouTube videos or whatever. Well, what's there? I find myself less of, yeah, yeah I find, and I find myself less and less free to shut off the ads even on YouTube. Have you noticed this within the past few months? Used to be that you know yeah. you'd have to watch five seconds of some stupid thing and then you could say skip and watch. But now, yeah, yeah. now not yeah. only not only are, are you not able to do that in certain cases, they're interrupting the video in the middle with an with a with a with an ad. And this is yeah. and this is because they know they've got you. They know that you you're now sort of like a captive. Now, what we have I think will be a bait and switch. Initially, it's going to be just oh yeah I can answer my email I can do all the things that you just described, Glenn. But I think that over time, we'll find ourselves less and less free to actually do what we want and more and more imposed upon because we are now captive. And we don't have an, even have an option at that point. We are in the, their control. Yeah, it, it, well, it, that, it's a very interesting thing connected to both Glenn's point and your, your point. And I, I guess it's drawn out what, with, a, with a contrasting image. Uh, Mortimer Adler. Um, years ago, I mean, he tells a story about years ago as a teacher when he first became, uh, he, he, very, he actually came to just a generic theism before his conversion to Christianity through reading Thomas Aquinas. And so he was, he was showing one of his students this argument over and over and over again. And the student just says, ah, I'm not making the connection. I'm not making the connection. And, and Mortimer Adler's spending hours trying to convince this person to see, you know, the, 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 even the rational need for the existence of God. So the student said, well, just why don't you tell me something about his life? And so Mortimer Adler finally says, okay, you know, after four or five hours of trying to convince this person. So he said, he started out with the fact that uh, most of the time Aquinas rode horseback 13 hours a day. And this student stopped and said, why didn't you start with that? Because unless there was a God, no one could write and think the way he did unless there was a God because he spent 13 hours a day riding horseback. <laughs> the, the point here related to the car is we think we're going to get in this car and be able to write a summa theologia, but because of the way we're conditioned in so many other ways by that technology, distraction, and all the other things, we're, we're not going to be doing that. But the strange irony is here's someone who had to ride a horseback, flopping up and down, having to manage something, and yet they still were capable of doing all this other, other stuff. Well, one of the things that, that Crawford does in the book is he talks about uh, driving kind of like uh, the time you're in the shower. So, you know, during your commute, you're, you're, yeah. you actually are engaged in a kind of activity that's a minimally demanding in certain respects. Yeah. And so your mind is actually free to do some things that it wouldn't do if you were actually working really hard at thinking. 
yeah. it's like, you know, it, it, we've all experienced this, particularly those of us who maybe are writing a book or dealing with a problem. We're in the shower and, you know, we were working at it intently and we couldn't make any progress. And then suddenly we're in the shower and boom, aha, boom. there it is. <laughs> you know, there's something about the human mind that kind of, uh, flourishes within this sort of sabbatical kind of environment. Uh, and creativity is something that I think that we're learning through people who study creativity isn't something that is really subject to control. I mean, it really does require sort of these zones yeah. uh, for it to, to occur. And he, uh, he talks about this, uh, at one point here. In fact, I'm right, I'm right at this point where he says, uh, in a society in which uh, any moment of repose has to be justified against the, the ruthless logic of opportunity costs. Isn't that great? <laughs> I've actually come across people who make this argument. Commute driving is perhaps the only real yeah. Sabbath left to us. <laughs> well, well it's, it's funny you say that because that, I mean, I remember when I was writing my master's thesis, finishing up at Duke, and I could not make a certain connection. I was going through a drive through I was ordering, a, I remember, a Cajun chicken biscuit in the South, right? That, you're tiny. Were but you at Popeye's? That, I, it was something like that, the Bojangles, <laughs> I believe, something, in the, something near Duke. And, but I remember that is where the answer to the argument I was trying to make a connection hit me. And that's when I pulled over, after I picked my order up, I pulled over and wrote it down. But it was, it was strange. But I think he's on to something there. I think it's yeah. not, that's, not, uh, that's not trivial. Well, that's you know, your subconscious, in principle, your subconscious never stops working. Yeah. Which is why, you know, the idea of sleeping on a problem and you wake up with the solution, which has happened to me. And that's why the subconscious yeah. to sleep. It just kind of keeps working, keeps kind of grinding away in the background. Um, well, you know, go ahead, Glenn. I'm sorry. But you? in order to get your subconscious to talk to you, you need space. You know, you need that, that quiet time in order for the ideas from your subconscious to emerge. Hmm. But I, but I think, though, that there's a kind of uh, phenomenon that occurs sort of when you're in routine activity. So, you know, so like I remember I, I worked, uh, the only time I worked for a corporation in my life was uh, it, when I was in college. And I was a, uh, a clerk in an uh, international bank, State Street Bank of Boston. So uh, this was, you know, at a point where things had not been, as automated as I'm sure they are now, but I would receive like a box of checks, <laughs> literally, you know, a few thousand checks. And, uh, I would, I was, uh, my, my job was to input data. And what I, what I discovered is that if I thought about it, I thought, thought about what I was doing in, in, invariably I would, uh, be prone to error. There would be errors that I would commit again and again and again. But the moment that I got into the zone and I wasn't thinking about what I was doing and I was just sort of like just sort of in the routine, yeah. my mind would operate at two levels. I was flawless. I would enter checks, you know, hundreds of checks without an error while I was yeah. thinking about maybe my class or my girlfriend or 
<laughs> or something else at another level. So there were two things going on. Um, and I wonder if there's something about sort of physically engaging the world in routine things that we've mastered that makes it possible for us to kind of, you know, and, and again, I'm kind of speculating here, enter into these zones and this idea that we, if we give our full attention to something naturally we'll be more productive is actually a uh, flawed premise. Uh, maybe, maybe the distraction is actually really, you know, important <laughs> to getting the answers. Yeah. Just an idea. Yeah. I think it depends on the particular kind of problem or project you're working on. Right. I mean, there are some things that really do require intense concentration and work. Um, you know, if I were a rabbi doing circumcision, I'd want to be really you're fully present, fully present. I've done so many of these that I can't even, I don't even need to think about it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so but there are other kinds of <laughs> there, there are other kinds of things where where you're you're exactly right, where just being in a routine and just sort of going, things emerge. And the I, I suppose one of the tricks is figuring out which kind of project you're in. Yeah. Yeah, because you know, in the book, he kind of He's kind of making a case for both both things. He's he's talking about at this point in the book that what we think is wasted time is not wasted time, and precisely the reason why it's not wasted time is because we're not trying to make it productive. There's mm -hmm. a paradox. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but he yeah, also yeah. he also at different points of the books talks about the kind of driving that requires full attention. You know, he's talk, he mm -hmm. talks about motocross and, and stuff like that, and he and he's got personal experience with a lot of this stuff. He does it himself, and uh, you know how how even that is a kind of uh, kind of empowering, I guess would be the a good way to put it, sort of thing to enter into. It's sort of like it's sort of like the Avengers. You're 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 kind of going into a a way of of being in which your powers uh, are amplified because you're driving. Now, obviously, you know a human being can't go 50 miles an hour. You know, without the aid of a car, <laughs> stuff like that. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And that's the exact opposite of empowerment, right there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There, there's an idea that people talk about: the unconscious competence. Yes. It's a goal mm -hmm. that you work toward, so that you don't need to think about what you're doing; it just happens because you have practice you've worked musicians uh, understand this i mean yeah, you know yeah. I'm, I'm not a great musician but if you put in front of me a piece of music that is within my range of ability i i, I see the notes and my fingers just move yeah yeah it's, it's similar to the way i mean i mean there are different approaches to doing academic work but as a teacher i'm somebody who'd rather immerse myself in the material and then work from it the way you're talking about it than, than just be scripted. And, and when that happens, it usually comes out in, in the, the, the best form and the best content I ever have. Whereas if everything is micromanaged and placed within this realm of control, it usually becomes rigid um, mm -hmm. 
I'm uncomfortable with the material. And so it's similar to, yeah, like music, you know, just fear of missing a note versus the freedom of a musician who's worked so much with it that it just, it, it just becomes, it just that, yeah, it just happens. Yeah. And you know, the interesting thing is with teaching, the students know that. I don't, yeah. any student who really likes PowerPoints. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I avoid them at all costs if I can. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which gets us back to this sort of paradox with technology. On the one hand, it seems to it seems to be empowering us in certain respects, and in other ways, it's actually innervating. You know, we, we, we're actually coming away from from our engagement with this these technologies uh, weaker, less competent, uh, with uh, less uh, wisdom, and. And I guess dependency. Yeah, yeah, it's all about that. And then the the, the thing that I think he's ingenious here uh, with is raising the question: Who's winning? Somebody's winning here. And if it's not yeah. you, then who? And and yeah. it, the illusion is you are winning, but it's not the case. And I think that this plays into some of the things we've been we've we've you know been uh, commiserating uh, over for a long time with regard to the state of the culture and stuff like that. On one hand, it's the best of times. On the other hand, it seems like the worst of times in terms of, you know, what people are capable of, what they can do. Uh, sort of, like, it's like incompetence is spreading uh, and, and that creates well, dependency. Yeah, and, and one of the things, I mean, this is something I'd like to explore on, a, on a, an episode or, or more. Um, is the way in which, I mean, technology, because it obviously uh, um, limits our exposure to any kind of resistance. Therefore, it also does the same thing with any kind of virtue formation. And, and so because of that, I mean, you look at the, the kind of the psychologically, emotionally triggered culture that we're involved in. Um, that can be just with a typical symbol or sign or monument or word or this can be just sent to a, a, a radical frenzy. And you have no, I mean, it's almost like technology becomes a, a medium of, of psychological warfare. <laughs> and, and what happens is they, they have never oftentimes had to deal with too much reality to develop the virtues required to be able to, to properly orient their, you know, their affections and their, and their effective intelligence, <laughs> you know, yeah. the affections behind their intelligence to the point that, that everything does become easily psychologically manipulatable. But on the other hand, they become the most manipulated kinds of, of, of humans. And, and there's something there that's sinister that is, it is happening that I don't even think we yet realize how, how, how bad it is. It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think I think that's right. And uh, we're get, we're coming to the close of our time, and uh, I think that's a good way to sort of sort of bring it home. And is that we live in a world in which, as Glenn brought out earlier, there are trade-offs, and there are parties. It seems to me, who are not fully transparent with regard to what they're getting out of us by. Yeah. encouraging us to rely upon various technologies. Now, obviously, there are some upsides. We're using Zoom right now. Uh, we are able to communicate to yeah. you know, thousands of people through this, this medium. So this is, not, this is not Luddite talk here. 
Yeah, but I think it's right. it's yeah. real it's realism though. I mean, we have to think about trade-offs as Glenn brought up earlier. And one of the things that seems to be happening uh, that maybe is intentional, maybe it's not, it, but it's just happening is is uh, you know virtue sort of uh, is being prevented or it's it's being inhibited. Uh, its development yeah. is being inhibited because virtue requires, I think, resistance. Yeah. In order for it to develop. Anyway, those yeah. are my thoughts. We've come to the end of our time, and uh, we should probably call it quits. But is there anything else you mm. want to say, Glenn, as we wrap up? Yeah, Neil Postman in Amusing uh, mm. Cells to Death said that in the battle between George Orwell and Aldous Huxley of 1984 versus Brave New World, we're in Brave New World. Yeah. I think that there's a lot of truth there, except I would say that we're in both Brave New World and 1984. And mm. I would also add we're somewhere around 1791 in the French Revolution. You know, there's, a, there's a comforting thought. The Jacobins <laughs> are rising. Yeah. yeah. And, and, they're, and, and they're doing it through the kinds of things that we're talking about, the kinds of technologies that are here essentially to connect yeah. us, the kind of communication technologies that are there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, I don't want to sound like a, a wild-eyed paranoid uh, whatever, but the fact of the matter is we are so dependent on these things and we are so manipulated by them that we really need to think long and hard a lot longer yeah. Harder than we have been about the implications of these technologies, what they are doing to shape our souls. It's not just a shop yeah. place that does that. Um, yeah, it, it, this this is a, a really important question that that I think we're going to have to come back to probably in multiple episodes. Mm. In yeah. yeah, yeah. Good thoughts, Glenn. Anything you want to say there, Tom, as we wrap up? Yeah, excellent thoughts, Glenn. Um, yeah, tied to that is just the way in which you have whole generations now that have grown up with technology increasingly having their psychologies be connected to the back and forth of the way in which information and psychological formation is happening through them. And you see all the little things show up in your ads and everything based on your algorithms and patterns. This stuff's tracing your behaviors and shaping your psychology. And so, yes, plenty of goods. I love that I can go on, order a book, boom, it's dropped here or that next. That's great. But the fact that they're also mapping my behavior and actually communicating with me on levels I'm not even aware is disturbing, <laughs> to say the least. And having gen a generation completely raised to be impacted that way without any, any ability to resist is problematic. Yeah. You know, I do a search on Amazon for a book for one of my students, and I get ads for it on Facebook. Yeah, this is really <laughs> yeah. These things and, this and is out there, and even even at a higher level, and and I think more worrisome. Years ago, I was at a, not not all that long ago, but I was at a uh, for the annual meeting of the Academy of Philosophy and Letters, and we had somebody who had been a, a long term employee for NSA, and uh, he had been there so long he remembered. He actually recounted listening in on Jane Fonda's phone conversations to us. Wow. <laughs> so, but he said, you know, he, what he told us, he said, you think that the only people who know what you're doing online are Google and Amazon? 
NSA has a massive facility in Utah that is dedicated purely to surveillance and records everything. Everything. Yeah. Every text, every email, it's recorded. Yeah. It doesn't mean that people are sorting through everything. It's not like there are little people with headphones on That's looking right. at your screen. But everything yeah. is recorded. And so if you just yeah. Google, this is it's public information. If you Google NSA surveillance Utah, yeah. it'll come up. And, and they, you know, I do know this as well through knowing someone uh, that I they bumped into some years ago. But they actually, not just in Utah, but they build these databases in that, the bottom wow. floors of people's homes. With, wow. And they build the whole, the whole information saving technology. It, yeah, it is incredible. So there's, so this conversation is recorded <laughs> in Utah. Hello, yeah. NSA. <laughs> Places yeah. as well. <laughs> that's right, that's right. Anyway, <laughs> well, we should wrap it up on those marvelous thoughts. Uh, anyway, so hopefully we'll be back with you next week. And uh, the, uh, the apocalypse uh, will not have occurred in the meantime. Uh, Plus we're really lucky. Anyway, but thanks a lot for listening to the Theology Podcast. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now.